Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Ben. I'm one of the ministers here, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our morning worship service. Now, before we begin, two items for your attention in our bulletin. One, uh, we have our evening worship service tonight at 6 o'clock, so be sure to come finish out the Lord's Day with us. Number two is what's printed there for you at the top of your bulletin announcements page. Next week begins new adult Sunday school classes. Ted and I are going to be teaching through 2 Samuel over six months. That's a continuation of our class on 1 Samuel. The ladies' class will be reconvening together to study uh, idols of a mother's heart. You can see Meredith Fletcher if you have questions about that. And the elders will be leading a class that is no longer to be announced, but will be announced right now. Uh, it's a class on the parables of Jesus. Um, so Clint and a couple of the other ruling elders will be leading you all through those uh, parables. So plan to come to Sunday school next week and start one of our new classes with us. That's all I have for you. The rest is there for your attention. Let's prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. Dear God, call us to worship him through his word. Let's read Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5. I'll read the bold if you'll read the italics. Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord his God. Please stand.
us pray. O God Almighty, it is to you that we lift up our souls. It is to you that we sing our praises now and forevermore. It is to you alone we offer our worship and our thanksgiving because we know that all good things have and do come from you. So Holy Spirit, stir up our hearts. Help us to direct our full attention to you with an undistracted devotion. Keep our hearts from being far away. Draw us near to you as we honor you with our prayers and our songs and our worship. God, we have no strength on our own, so we ask you to give us the strength and wisdom necessary to put our trust not in worldly princes and worldly treasures, but in the God who loves and saves sinners like us. So God, open our eyes even more so that we may see the saving path that you have shown us through Christ Jesus. And by your Spirit, cause us to come, cause us to, come to him in faith, mentioning, mentioning no other name, pleading no other righteousness, and trusting in no other atonement other than the name, righteousness, and atonement of your blessed Son, Jesus, whose name we pray in, and who also taught, who also taught us how to pray by saying, Our Father, Father who, who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trust as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us evil, thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As we do most Sundays, and as Christians have been doing for almost 2,000 years, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, which you can find in your bulletin. Um, R.C. Sproul had this quote to say, or had this quote about the Creed, uh, this ancient creed summarizes the cardinal doctrines of Christian belief, and it boldly declares that there is truth that is foundational to life. It is a truth that cannot be compromised without the peril of falling into an abyss of meaninglessness. So, Christian, this morning I ask you, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you remain standing and grab a hymnal and turn to hymn number 57. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, O my soul. Hymn number 57.
seated. Our scripture reading this morning uh, we found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, 18 through 29. While you turn to those verses in your Bible, um, allow me to give you some commentary from uh, the Puritan Matthew Henry. Henry says this, Christ is the mediator of this new covenant between God and man, to bring God and man together in this covenant, to keep them together, and to plead with God for us, and to plead with us for God, and at length to bring God and his people together in heaven. This covenant is made firm by the blood of Christ, sprinkled upon our consciences, as the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled upon the altar and the victim. The blood, this blood of Christ speaks on behalf of sinners. It pleads not for vengeance, but for mercy. See then that you refuse not his gracious call and offered salvation. So follow along with me as I read Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that then, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we, if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God's word. Let us pray. <clears throat> Majestic God, our sovereign Lord, you are high above the heavens. And we, become, and we come before you in reverence and awe because you, O oh God, are a consuming fire. You are the one true God who is pure and untainted by sin. You are the only one who is worthy of all adoration and praise. So let our hearts be consumed with the wonder of your holiness. May the lives of your people be a living testimony to your glory. You are the King of kings and your reign is without end. Your sovereignty extends over all of your creation. We, we praise you for your unlimited power. We praise you for your unchanging nature and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your love endures forever. And that your faithfulness is a rock that we can always stand upon. We praise you for your perfect wisdom and that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are beyond our comprehension. And we that we may always desire to submit to your will, trust your wisdom, and seek your, seek your counsel in all that we do. God, we are amazed and praise you for your mercy and your grace because we are constantly in need of it. You have poured your love upon us, though we have done nothing to deserve it. We confess that we are prone to sin, and we often find ourselves running headlong towards our own destruction. Because we have relied on our own strength and our own finite wisdom, we have fallen short time and time again. We know that we are powerless to overcome sin and to live a life that pleases you so without your help. So by your spirit, we ask that you transform us from the inside out and renew our minds and change our hearts. And even, but even in our guilt, remind us that your grace is sufficient and that in our weakness, your power is made perfect. God, you have proven 
to be true to your promises throughout the ages. Showing us, showing us this, we ask that you strengthen the faith of your people. Make it an authentic and a saving faith. Remind us that faith is not a mere crossing of the fingers or a hoping for the best. Remind us what your word tells us. As the author of Hebrews states, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. That faith is a positive certainty expressed in action. It is taking you, God, at your word and knowing that your speaking is your doing. And by the help of the Spirit, remind us of who you are, a covenantal God that keeps his promises and, and that has promised to be with us always. Lord we, Lord, we pray that you would help help us to find joy and contentment in following your will, even when it's difficult or painful. And give us a heart that desires your will above our own. God, we are thankful for you, for you are a generous God who is the giver of all good things. Help us to not see a greater value in these gifts than in you who has given them to us. For we know these gifts are only temporary as opposed to the glory that awaits us. And may we regard the world and all that is in it as nothing compared to the value and satisfaction of knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we know that to lose everything but to gain him is to gain all. God, you are the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not yet overcome, has not and will not ever overcome it. You have sent your son Jesus to reveal your glory to the world, and in him we see your grace and your truth. Help us, Lord, to adore your glory with all of our heart, with all our soul and our mind and our strength. May we worship you in spirit and truth as we behold your glory and are transformed into your image through the power of your spirit. May we give you all the glory and honor that you are due because you alone are worthy. May your name be exalted and lifted high above all, throughout all the ages, throughout all the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, let us stand and sing hymn number 295. Crown him with many crowns. Hymn number 295.
Oh, Lord, our God, how blessed we are in you. What more could we ask than what you have provided for us in our Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, as we think back over the last year and even the years before that, we fail to count how much you have done for us in so very many ways and places in our lives. So be pleased to accept these offerings of our gratitude and love and use them for the growth of your kingdom and the glory of the Lord Jesus to the very ends of the earth and to eternity. And we ask it for his sake. Amen. number 211 God rest you merry gentlemen <clears throat> if you will sing with us on verse 1 and your verse 4 and then the final response or the final refrain but I'll guide you through that if you'll just follow me so please stand
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give all glory and thanks to you that you have provided us with your holy and inspired word, that we may not be lost in this life, that we may not be lost in eternity in hell, but that we may know our Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. So we ask as we turn to your word now that you would speak by your servant so that your people may hear the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Refresh us again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. I won't assume that you figured it out last week. Go to the end of the Old Testament. Go back three books. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai is waiting for you after that. We covered Haggai chapter 1 last week, and we're going to finish the series this morning with Haggai chapter 2. Hear God's word. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. 
and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, will endure forever. Amen. Well, last week we considered Haggai chapter 1. It was a, a rather rough sermon from the preacher to his people there in that day. The Israelites that Haggai is ministering to were the first ones to return back to the promised land from the land of exile in Babylon. And they came back, you remember, in order to rebuild the temple of God and restore proper worship to God's people. But after some pushback from the surrounding nations and from the political figures in charge over them back in Persia, uh, they stopped their construction. They, uh, they settled into a life of comfort and ease. They were seeking primarily to take care of their own selves, their crops. Uh, while they weren't yielding exactly what they wanted, they had enough uh, to get by and to build nice homes for themselves. And, and 20 years after that ceasing of construction, the Lord sent Haggai to call the people out. You can look back at the previous chapter. It's In my Bible, it's on the same page. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 9 was where the prime indictment came. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It's a rather stern chastisement from God to his people. But we saw the Lord work through the ministry of the preaching of his word, and the people turned from their sin. They feared the Lord, and they came back to obedience. They renewed their work on the Lord's temple. As we begin to consider chapter 2, I want you to think in your minds, have you ever gone uh, back as an adult to a place that you used to visit as a child? Places seem smaller, right? The excitement that's often uh, carried up in, in, in things as children that we loved is often gone as an adult. You know, the tree that you used to climb, it, even though it continued to grow, it's so much smaller than it used to be. Uh, the fort that you built in the woods, all of a sudden it's not the mansion that it used to be, but it's just sticks and branches and dead leaves. Forts are cool still, and climbing trees uh, as well. But 30 years later, the excitement's worn off in a lot of ways, hasn't it? It's not quite the same as it used to be. And something similar is going on here with these remnant Israelites as they begin to rebuild the temple of God. It's just not what it once was. And it seems like it may never be that way again. In chapter 2, if you were tracking through the timeline, the Lord comes to the Israelites here at, at two different occasions. Once, there at the beginning of the chapter, when they first begin to work, and again, beginning in verse 10 all the way through the end, after the foundation had been completed or, or when the foundation was about to be completed. And both times, he comes not in the way he came in chapter 1 with these stern words of chastising, but rather he comes with a purpose of encouragement. And so if, if your Bible's outlined at all like mine, we're going to take it as these headings uh, situate, verses 1 through 9, the encouragement in rebuilding the temple, verses 10 through 19, encouragement of uh, and with divine blessing, and then verses 20 through 23 at the end, the encouragement with this promise, though it is a little veiled, a promise of Messiah. There, beginning in verse 1, about a month has passed uh, since Haggai preached his first sermon in chapter 1. And he comes back with another word from the Lord. And it's important to know that there hasn't been a lot of time in, in the intervening weeks for them to actually start the construction. Uh, they, they had the, the Feast of, 
of booths just previously. Before that uh, in time was the, the Day of Atonement. There had been a lot of festivals and religious requirements for them. They didn't have time to get to work. And so they're just now beginning, about a month later, three, three and a half weeks later. And the Lord comes and speaks. Look down at verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Isn't it as nothing in your eyes? You know, though they had responded to the first sermon from Haggai in chapter 1 with, with fear and obedience, with repentance and trust, they were probably still struggling to find motivation to work. Still looking around and wondering what really was going to happen. Do you remember, the Lord asks them, what the temple used to be like? If there was anyone there who remembered from a firsthand experience, they were likely in their 70s or older, and their memories of that first temple were but fuzzy childhood memories of when their parents would have taken them to Jerusalem for the festivals. And it's likely that Haggai stands in the middle of the rubble. How do you see it now? It says nothing, is it not? Compared to what it used to be. These Israelites were being about the work of God, but limited human eyes had a hard time seeing past the crumbling structures before them. How will we ever get to what this place used to be? Maybe you've felt like this in the face of the Lord's work or in the course of your Christian life. Really, I need to give the whole day to the Lord? One whole day in seven? I don't have time with all the things I need to get done. Really, regular time in God's Word, not just for me, but also leading my family in the same. I don't have enough sleep to rise that early. Am I really supposed to grow in godliness with all the temptation and wickedness that is found in this world? Really? Mortify my sin when I'm still tethered to this body of death? Really, Lord? How will we ever get to what He says we are called to be? How will the temple ever, for these Israelites, return to the glory that it once had? What does the Lord say to His people? Look back. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is the constant refrain of our God. Do you remember in Deuteronomy, Moses was told to be strong and courageous. When Joshua came into leadership and was to take the people into the land of promise without his mentor Moses following him, he was told, be strong and courageous. When David knew that his death was imminent and he was speaking to his son Solomon about the work ahead of him, not just to build the temple, but to rule the nation, what did he say? Solomon, be strong and courageous. The Lord comes and says the same thing to these people here. Be strong in the face of adversity. In the face of difficulty, be strong. It's a very overwhelming imperative, isn't it? But what always accompanies this command from the Lord to be strong? What always comes with it? The Lord told Moses in Deuteronomy 31, Be strong, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. What did he tell Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David said the same thing to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. Do not be afraid. 
for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. The difficulties of the Christian life cannot be overcome simply by pulling up your bootstraps. Progress in godliness and mortification of sin does not come about by a preacher telling you, ever so loudly he may be, be strong! That doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. One commentator makes the point that the world will tell you this. Be strong. I know that you've got it in you. He goes on to say that this is what sets the Scriptures apart from the world because the Scriptures recognize that you don't have it in you. (laughs) Right? You don't. The command to be strong is useless apart from the declaration that the Lord is with you. Be strong, says the Lord. I am with you. Track it. It is the presence of God that makes God's people strong. Because we're weak in ourselves. We have no strength for the hard things. What a blessing it is that He's provided us with His Word and the ministry of His Spirit upon our hearts that we may know how the Lord will lead and what He has done and what He has promised. In trouble and temptation, in the face of death and sickness and things that you never planned, even just in the course of regular Christian living, mothers with children at home, fathers at work in their vocations, and everything in between. Christian, be strong. Stand for what is right. Trust what the Lord has done for us. Not because you're strong in yourself, but why? Because the Lord is with you. That promise, just as sure as it was for them, is sure for you today in Christ. But, but the Lord goes on through Haggai and adds more encouragement to this. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house, that is, the glory that it, um, the glory that it will one day have, shall be greater than the former glory it had already. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Some of this is repeated by Paul in Hebrews chapter 12, which we heard from earlier. What's the Lord saying here? Well, there's a lot, and we don't have time to get into every single little detail. But remember back in Exodus, when Moses was called up to the mountain to meet with God, what did the people witness on the mountain? But that the the whole world shook, and that smoke descended, and lightning flashed, and fire came forth declaring that the Lord was there meeting with Moses. But more than that, it was declaring that there was now a a huge shift in the way that God would now deal with His people. The coming of the law, the ministry through Moses, and the, the dispensation that He was called to oversee. Here Haggai says, notice in verse, verse 6, it's, it's in a little while. I don't think little while means the same thing to him as it would mean to me. But um, in a little while, another change is coming. I'm going to shake the world again. We're going to bring about a new change. The Lord is doing something still where glory will come and peace will reign. And we're going to get there, but if you're, if you're anticipating Christ as the answer to this, yes, that's where they're headed. That's where Haggai's going. But the more significant point here to note is that all of verse 6 through 9 describes a future blessing that the Lord Himself will establish. Treasure and silver and gold and glory and peace. The work of rebuilding for them in this moment may seem bleak. It may seem like nothing good will ever come again. 
But here the Lord reminds His people, listen, that He is always at work. That His purposes cannot be thwarted. He, he effectively says to them, trust Me. Obey and work and let Me be concerned with the future. God's purpose is not always so clear to us, is it? When someone is sick, we wonder why. When it's chronic, we wonder more. When someone dies unexpectedly or expectedly, we, we yearn to know the reason why God has taken them from us. When our children spurn the Lord and turn away from our instruction, we want to know why. What is God's purpose in all of the difficulty what is His purpose in not giving me victory over the sin that I hate? It's often hard to see God's purposes. I mean, just think as one example of the Lord Jesus Himself. I mean, He was born to a poor family, visited first by lowly shepherds, grew up in an insignificant town. He was despised by the religious leaders of His day. He was condemned for things that He never did and put to death at the hands of lawless men. What good would come of all of that? I mean, in the moment, wouldn't you wonder too, what is the Lord doing by subjecting His Son to this type of existence? And yet we know from all of it that the Lord has brought so much good. I mean, how many of you have experienced the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet in the moments when he was experiencing the humiliation of his incarnation, it looked like nothing good may ever happen ever again. And yet here we sit so many years later, reaping the benefits of salvation and blessing. That Who knew that in, in the death and the blood of the cross was the culmination of all the promises of God brought to a head in that God-man Jesus of Nazareth. It didn't always look that way, though. It felt hopeless. God's work is not always so clear to us. Your sanctification and your growth in godliness sometimes feel thwarted and stunted. Raising children is so challenging. Praying for revival over and over and over and over again and yet not seeming to see any answers these things can seem fruitless. But what Haggai chapter 2 declares to us, beloved, is that you must trust the Lord. Be strong. Not because you are strong, but because the Lord is with you and you can trust Him to fulfill His promises to carry you along. The next words of encouragement came two months later. The construction had advanced to the point of laying the foundation. And this particular day would have been marked on calendars and remembered for years afterwards. Maybe something like Foundation Day. And Haggai comes with two messages from the Lord on this same day. First, Haggai brings encouragement of divine blessing upon the people and their work. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. And, and there's two questions that the Lord has given Haggai to ask. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? It, it was common then. They didn't have the whole temple structure built. They would make a sacrifice, and a lot of the meat would have to go home with the priests. And so they'd fold it up in their robes, and their robes would become holy as a result of touching the holy sacrificed meat. And the question is now, if I go and I touch something else, does the hymnal all of a sudden become holy? No, says the priests. Holiness is not indefinitely transferable. 
Verse 13, Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. These questions are, are much less obvious. Uh, the answers, rather, are much less obvious to us. They weren't riddles to the priests then. They didn't stump them in any way. It was very well known that in God's ceremonial system, ritual purity, cleanliness, couldn't be passed on indefinitely. But ritual uncleanness and impurity could. So that if I touched a dead body and then I shook hands with Clint and then Clint picked up his hat and then Tim put his hat on, we're all unclean, the hat included. Aren't we glad we live in a different epoch of God's covenant? The repentance at the end of chapter 1 was a blessing of the Spirit in their hearts, but not everything got fixed. Look at 14, the, 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 the lesson that Haggai teaches in these questions. Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. This is not the, the harsh chastisement of chapter 1, but it is a warning of sorts. Be aware, Haggai says. Keep a close eye on your hearts, he says, that you don't begin to imagine that because you're um, in the midst of doing good work on the temple that you're allowed to harbor sin in your heart still. It, it's not the outward motions of religion that make our hearts clean. Haggai comes with this warning. And think of it, I mean... Our, Aren't our hearts so fickle? It is the most difficult of tasks to change the motion of your heart. In fact, the Scriptures teach us that apart from the Spirit, we can't. It's impossible for us to change what we love. John Mackey is one commentator on this text, and he has these several sentences I want to read to you as he seeks to make application of this point and brings clarity, I think. He says, The tendency to rest satisfied with an outward connection with God's cause is still prevalent. He says, Just as the Jews of Haggai's day might have considered all to be right between them and God because a start had been made on rebuilding the temple, so there are many who think well of themselves today because they attend church services or give to the Lord's cause or engage in various good works. But, he writes, however commendable such actions may be in themselves, they do not transmit holiness to those who perform them. True holiness requires first the renewing work of the Spirit and an inner commitment to the Lord of which good works are an outward expression. So, he concludes, if there is not a renewed heart within the individual, then acts of devotion in themselves are just a charade. Heed the warning. In the midst of a chapter full of encouragement, heed the warning. Is there a renewed heart in you? Have you been brought near to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then all your motions of religion are just a charade. It's not what's on the outside that makes us clean. The Spirit must come in and purify us. It's with this warning in mind that the Lord speaks wonderful words of encouragement here uh, beginning in 15. Now then, consider from this day Onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Right? He reminds them of, of how great, uh, rather, how, how things were before their repentance. What does he say? You, you went looking for 20 measures of grain, but there were only 10. And you went looking for 50 measures of wine, but there were only 20. And then he tells them why. There at the beginning of 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight. He's rehearsing the things that he made clear in chapter 1 about why they were so frustrated in their work. 
Then he asks there in 19, is the seed yet in the barn? None of us know the answer to that question, although everybody who would have heard this did. It was December. The, the heavy rains had come and, and softened the earth, and so the seeds had already come out of the barns and been planted in the ground. Is the seed yet in the barn? No, of course not, the people would say. The seed's out there in the fields. He reminds them that before this day, they had no yield in their crops, no blessing on their labor. But now what? All of this leading to the end of verse 19. What of that seed that had been planted that wasn't in the barn, but that was out in the soil? The Lord says, from this day on, I will bless you. He reminds them of all the trouble they've had up till now and says, yes, but from this point, blessing is coming. The curses will be turned around into the blessings that were promised to Moses and the people. It, it will no longer be the way it once was. And, and my mind goes to James and thinks that what the Lord is declaring here is what James declares to us in the New Testament, that the people have drawn near to God. And so the Lord has drawn near to them, you see. And it's shown even more clearly in the final verses in the third encouragement as the Lord addresses Zerubbabel directly. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And he repeats the, 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 the notion of shaking and this new era and the big change. Look at 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So a day is coming when shaking will take place and the whole world will bow to the reign of our God. But the significance of this final oracle is that 23 at the end. The Lord tells Zerubbabel that he has chosen him to be a signet ring. Now, it's important in order to understand this to know that Zerubbabel is in the, the kingly line of David. He's a descendant of Solomon and David, his father. Zerubbabel's grandfather was King Jehoiachin. And before Babylon had invaded the land and taken the people out, in Jeremiah 22, the Lord spoke to Jehoiachin and said, Even if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. A signet ring was not meant to be removed. It was a sign of kingship and rule and reign. And even though Jehoiachin had at one point been a precious signet ring on God's hand, the Lord told him that he would remove him. And what we know in history is that Jehoiachin was, was um, handed over to his enemies and died in exile. This is why 23 is so significant. By all accounts, that prophetic word to Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel's grandfather, meant that David's line had been cut off and that there would be no Messiah to come. That is why 23 is so significant. It is the reversal of divine rejection. The history of the line of David had seemingly come to an end in the death of Jehoiachin, whom God abandoned. But now, Zerubbabel's presence and rule, the Lord says, points forward to the realization of the promise that God will come and send a Redeemer through the line of David that is renewed here in Jehoiachin's grandson. What an encouragement for the people there in ruined Jerusalem. Matters looked bleak and troublesome, but here the Lord points to their governors, Zerubbabel, and assures them, this one is in the line of David, and I have reestablished that line. He says, on, on this foundation day, you will mark and remember that I have sealed again my promise that I gave you in the past. I will surely send a son of David to redeem my people Israel. This is where the whole book of Haggai points, is here, verse 23. Have you ever heard, you know, especially in certain seasons, we'll read from Matthew chapter 1, and we'll read 
the, the lineage of Jesus. Have you caught Zerubbabel's name there before? The son of Jehoiachin, son of Shealtiel, son of Zerubbabel. All the way down to Christ. Do you know that Old Testament believers are saved in the same way that New Testament believers are saved? That their hope is just as much in Christ as ours is today? They looked forward to a coming Savior. We look back to the arrival of that same Savior. This is why Haggai's message is such an encouragement to them and to us. Because it points us to the same thing. The King Jesus who reigns over all things. He is the one who, as we've already read, is with us. He's the one who brings peace from verse 9. He's the one who will shake the world and every knee will bow before Him. He's the one who's come and brought salvation for His people. The the trouble of life and the, and the, the challenge of Christian living, the temptations of sin and wickedness that are present in this world, in all of these things, beloved, look to King Jesus. Look to our Savior, who was promised to come, and from the New Testament we know has come and has shaken the world. In Christ, God is with you. So be strong and trust the Lord. Amen. Father, for the sake of Your Son, send Your Holy Spirit to write the truth of Your Word upon our hearts so that we may not sin against You. We love you. We're so glad that Jesus came and that he has saved us from sin and death. And we thank you for the testimony of Haggai that you never abandon your people, but always fulfill your promises. Come and fulfill your promise to us even now to draw us along in sanctification and to keep us under glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me and let's sing 529, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling. Hear the Lord's benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.